jump in. Okay, so what? We're going to start in 21st century, and then we're going to go to 1st century, and then we're going to jump back to 21st century. Okay, so let's start with 21st century. This is the bonus session, right? This was not, didn't, wasn't supposed to exist, but we ran out of time last week, so this is going to be a little bit extra content than we even planned originally. Are we on number three? Uh, we are on number three. We are on number three, but I'm doing it a little bit differently than I would have. I don't have a handout for you because this was bonus and I didn't take time to make a new handout. So, um, 21st century. Beyond the ministry of preaching the word and prayer and the shepherding that the elders are called to do that we talked about last week. Beyond the day-to-day disciple-making, the work of the ministry that Ephesians 4 describes as speaking the truth in love for the building up of the body of Christ spiritually. Beyond those ministries, there's a large amount of logistical and practical administration that goes into what churches are actually called by Christ to do. So I just want you to think about what... The Bible instructs for local communities of faith to do. I mean, we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. That means we're supposed to exist in communities in such a way that we we enlighten them to the gospel, that we preserve society as a whole. We enrich society by the way we serve and participate in society. We're called to care for the impoverished, the helpless, the hurting, the orphan, the widow, Consider uh, ministries that provide counsel for broken families, for the drug addict. If, if someone doesn't come alongside the drug addict, who will? Ministries that evangelize the lost, ministries that disciple children and youth that are growing up in households where they have no Christian in their household. So what's a fifth grader to do with no Christian parents, no Christian family members, unless the church somehow tries to, you know, meet, meet the gap there, Right? Consider uh, the need for church planting, church revitalizations, international missions, taking the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. Consider all that goes into just one short-term mission trip logistically. Travel and hotels and uh, cars once you get there and communication back and forth between the missionaries. Consider the logistical uh, uh, details involved with supporting a long-term missionary or, or maintaining gospel partnerships with ministries across the world. On any given Sunday morning gathering, right? I mean, just this morning, this morning, in order for St. Rose Community Church to gather, bills were paid, facilities were cleaned, the air condition was fixed, technology is utilized, music is planned, child care is coordinated, visitors are greeted, offering is taken, announcements are made, and the list goes on just to accomplish, right? Just to pull off the one-hour gathering of the saints in a particular location. Things had to take place. And pastors alone are incapable of carrying out all of these tasks, all of these ministries, without forsaking their primary role that we looked at last week of teaching the word, of, of offering spiritual oversight to the congregation, of, of praying for the congregation. So pastors 
and churches are left asking the question, how in the world do we do all this? It seems that God, that Christ has laid on us a burden of ministry in the world that is more than we're capable of, right? Especially more we're capable of as a group of elders or a group of pastors or even as, as members. And I believe this is precisely why God gifted the church with three offices, right? Philippians 1.1, I think that Paul is thanking three groups of people because he recognized it took all three groups of people to participate in the greater mission across the Roman Empire. So remember, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So he thanks the Philippians, the saints, the overseers and the deacons, three groups of people. Now, now, now keep in mind, so we, we, we said, 20, we talked a little bit about 21st century. Just think about all that goes in to this moment, right? But let's think of it all went into Paul receiving funds from the Philippian church, right? The church of Philippi is over 800 miles away from where Paul's imprisoned. Yet somehow that little church plant in Philippi that started in Lydia's house got support to Paul 800 miles away. Now, as we said the other day, they couldn't Amazon Prime anything to him, right? So transportation is slow, difficult, costly, even dangerous. Yet somehow the church mobilizes, organizes, and accomplishes missionary support against all of these obstacles. And the question is, well, how? Well, I think that Paul's thanking them because he's recognizing it took all the saints the overseers and the deacons working together to function as a church to push the gospel forward into a new place. He assumes these three groups are what made this mission possible, right? Now, we talked about older we talked about elders last week. We talked about the, the responsibility of the congregation. Today we're specifically talking about the deacons. So if you have your Bibles. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6, familiar passage. There are only two primary texts in the New Testament which give us specific guidance regarding the office of deacon. Acts chapter 6 being a very insightful one, but the less Maybe the uh, less clear that it's an official office within the church because it's the first time this has happened, kind of the prototype of what deacons would become. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. But before we read it, let's pause and, uh, and let's just pray to the Lord that he would guide our discussion this morning. Uh, Lord, we, we love you. We thank you for the New Testament and for its teaching and on, on how a church can be ordered and structured in order to accomplish the Great Commission. And we pray that you would use our time together now to increase our understanding and uh, it, it prepare us to be healthy, good, vibrant church members who work together to get the gospel to where it has not been proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint 
by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men, full of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they, being the gathering, being the the members, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles. So now the congregation's bringing these men to the apostles, asking for their affirmation, right? And the apostles prayed and they laid hands on them, sort of the symbol of affirmation. Yeah, we agree with these guys. Verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, Several things to learn from this text. Um, The way Acts is structured, it's constantly giving you these snapshots of sort of pivotal moments in the life of the church, right? You're just getting a highlight reel of things that Luke thinks is important for the future church to see happening, right? So, I mean, obviously, lots of stuff is happening in the book of Acts. I mean, uh, people don't realize that lots of time is going by, right? So, I mean, people think that Paul saw the light and got saved and was planting churches the next week. But there's actually a 13-year gap between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 13. So if you have something in in Acts that's being recorded and being put up for you, Luke's putting it there for a reason because he wants the church to learn from these things, right? I mean, Luke's traveling with Paul as they're planting new churches. So he's, he's providing sort of patterns and models and saying, see what happened. See the beginnings of the way God was bringing things together. And so one of the first things you recognize is the church extending itself to carry out a diverse uh, group of ministries. I mean, they're, one of the needs that comes up, right, is caring for Widows amongst them. So widows often had no way of income in the first century, right? No husbands to work a trade or to work the field. They're left in poverty. There's no social security. There's no health insurance. There's no life insurance policies. They, the, the need would have been great for those whose husbands had died. So naturally, the church says, Jesus told us to care for people like this. We're saved by Jesus. How can we care for people like this? And so the church comes together, starts trying to care for the widows in Need, which is beautiful and awesome and good. But as the church grew, the needs grew, right? And as the church grew, the problems grew. Now, notice the description of verse 1. Look at verse 1. And Luke is intentional to tell you this. When the disciples were increasing in number. So he's letting you know things are getting out of hand here. (laughs) There's, There's a lot of people coming to faith in Jesus As the church increases the number, so do the issues. Because when a church grows, it grows by adding more people. And people are sinners. So when a church grows, you get more sinners in one place trying to do the same thing. So by adding more people, i.e. more sinners, you have more potential problems. 
Anytime you get a group of people working together, you will find messiness, tension, occasional disagreements, and in some instances, even complaining, even murmuring. I know you've never experienced a complainer in the church before, but it happened in Acts chapter 6. And it was a big enough issue, the murmuring and complaining and disunity is a big enough issue that out of thousands of people, it made its way to the apostles. Verse 1, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So in this particular instance, a rumor arises that Hebrew-speaking widows are receiving special treatment while Greek-speaking widows are being overlooked. Now, there's already a cultural dynamic happening here. There's already tension happening between these two groups of people. Before they ever even came to faith in Jesus, they were very different from one another. Greek-speaking Jews had been often overlooked and thought of as outsiders. I mean, you're just part of the the Greek or the Roman uh, influence on this region. You're not a true Jew. Uh, They were those Jews who'd been raised in and conformed by Roman culture more than Jewish culture. The only reason these two groups of people had come together in the same community of faith was the miracle of the Spirit, right? The only reason that these two uh, racially, culturally different people came together was because they believed the same gospel. But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be tensions, that there's not going to be difficulties. In fact, side note, right, along the way in the book of Acts, you have threats of persecution in chapter 4, then you have actual persecution, then in chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira lying, right? You have corruption happening within the church. God squashes that. Now in Acts chapter 6, Luke is kind of thematically showing you here's another danger, and it's the danger of disunity, right? So just kind of a side note, if Satan cannot destroy a church with outside devastation, he will work inevitably to seek to destroy it with inside division, okay? So there's inside division, Satan will use misunderstanding, miscommunication, envy, jealousy, covetousness, pride. He'll use differences in race, socioeconomic status, stages in life, even musical worship preferences. He will even use different degrees and varieties of spiritual giftings to divide the church. That's a big problem in 1 Corinthians. This person has this gift. This person doesn't have this gift. And a church struggling with disunity is also a church that becomes distracted from the primary mission. I mean, if you're murmuring against one another and complaining that so-and-so did me wrong and so-and-so didn't invite me to this and everybody went out to lunch after church and I didn't get invited, although I've never invited anyone ever myself, but it's everyone else's responsibility to care about me because I'm a 25-year-old millennial and I don't know how to have relationships. Sorry for whoever I just stepped on. All right. So, so, so that type of thing happens, right? Um, and it distracts. From, from the, true, the true mission. So the 12 apostles recognize potential danger here. They see it. They see the issue. It's great. They need to do something about it. But I just want you to think about the context in which these, these guys are, are essentially pastoring, right? The, the apostles are sort of thrust in the pastoral ministry now. Thousands of new converts. Thousands more who need to hear the gospel. A desperate time a desperate need for spending time daily in deep prayer and figuring out how to teach these people and protect them from false teaching, imminent danger from persecution. 
They're, they're, they're dealing with the same logistical issues that we would deal with. Where are we going to meet? <laughs> right? I mean, we were trying to meet in the temple, but we got flogged, right? So are we going to keep meeting there? We're going to, you know, how are we going to do small groups? I mean, what, how in the world do we manage this growing church and keep it doctrinally sound when you have false teachers at every corner? They're, they're, they recognize something. They recognized that there had to be some sort of group of people in the church that was giving their primary time and attention to the doctrinal teaching and direction of the church. They recognized, man, we could fix this issue, but if we spend all our time fixing this issue, then hundreds of other issues are going to arise. So what in the world do we do? Look at verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Is this because they thought that they were above serving tables? No, I do not think so. In fact, their teaching absolutely is opposed to saying, I'm too good to serve tables. No, what they're saying is, it's not good if we give all of our attention to this, but then we don't do the teaching of the word. So... Uh, They say it again in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they recognize a need for a group of people to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. But then the question is, well, how do we care for the widows? And the answer Luke gives us in Acts 6 is another type of group of people called the deacons, right? Verse 3 Pick out from among you seven men, good repute, full of spirit, wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The apostles are asked the congregation to select for themselves qualified men to care for this ministry. Now, my question is, if they had to be men of good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, why the spiritual qualifications? If all they're doing is handing out food, why do you need... To be full of wisdom to hand out food. Like, why do you need to be full of the spirit to hand out food? Now, I think there's something that's happened in our society when we talk about deacons where we've, there's ditches on two sides of the road that I hope we'll see clearer throughout the rest of this lesson. There's this deacons are just servants. So they just do the manual labor of caring for some physical need. And that's a ditch over here. No, 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 no. They were obviously doing more than just handing widows food. You don't have to be full of, the wis- full of wisdom to hand widows food, right? That they, there was something deeper than, oh, they're just servants. They just mop the floors. They just clean the toilets. There's been a degrading of deacons in one sense because on the other side of the road, because of our faulty uh, church polity in Southern Baptist life where you had one CEO pastor, there was a leadership vacuum that happened where deacons became the pseudo-elders who functioned like a board of trustees rather than a group of task-oriented servants that are helping lead the church in ministry areas. So you got one side of the ditches, they're just servants. They don't, you know, don't give them any sort of leadership, any sort of kind of like responsibility. They just carry out the mundane stuff. And the other side is they function like elders because we don't actually have elders. Because this is what happened in Baptist churches. They had one pastor... Operating as a CEO, right? When that pastor leaves or gets fired or goes on a sabbatical, um, where does the leadership fall? 
There's a vacuum, right? Who preaches? Who, who makes decisions? Who organizes? In a, in a Baptist church with only one elder and then a group of deacons and then members, who normally takes up the responsibility? The, the deacons, right? Normally the deacons step into a role and they start operating like elders because the church actually needs elders. <laughs> and they're afraid to use that term, but the church actually needs multiple people coming together to try to help lead. And so the deacons start serving that role. But while they're doing that, guess what they're not doing? The ministry stuff that deacons are really called to do. So there's two ditches that will become clear as we move on. But I think the reason they need qualifications here is because these deacons are not just handing out food. These, these men are going to be asked to steward finances, resources, to oversee volunteers. I don't think that, that they're the only ones distributing food here. I think they're mobilizing a church of thousands to help take care of hundreds of widows. It wasn't just seven dudes. It was seven dudes who then mobilized the members and brought organization to the system to help accomplish a very complex task. They would have to develop some sort of strategy, rotation, plan of distribution. Where's the food come from? How's the food paid? How's the food get there? And they would be on the front lines of easing the tension between angry, complaining, hungry widows. Right? They would be the ones talking about, well, that's a miscommunication. No, we did not mean to overlook you. They would be interceding among church members who were on the opposite sides of the division. So this is an important role. If the apostles were really going to focus on the primary work of their ministry of the word and praying, then they needed people that they could entrust this ministry to and then go about doing what they're supposed to do because these were trustworthy people. And look at how Luke, look at what Luke says happens when all this comes together, right? The congregation selects them, says, we're pleased with this. We're good to work with these guys. These guys start doing the ministry. The apostles start continuing preaching and praying. Look at what Luke says in Acts 6 verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why did Luke put that there? What's he trying to communicate to you? It's more effective this way. This is good. This is effective. This is a, when, when you have a church operating as a well-oiled machine where there's a group of people focused on the preaching and the praying and the shepherding and there's a group of people who's focused on carrying out the logistics of ministry service, which would otherwise stretch the leadership too thin, and then you got members who are doing the work of the ministry, what you have is a beautiful choreographed dance, everybody dancing to the same rhythm but got their own moves, right? They're, they're all dancing the same rhythm, make disciples of all nations, get the gospel where it has not been. But they got different moves, right? And if one party in the choreographed dance gets off beat and they start dancing to their own rhythm, then the whole thing, everybody starts bumping into each other and we got problems, right? So what Luke is saying, you get these, this system in place. The disciples multiply, they increase. The word of God increases greatly. Now, this is just sort of the prototype. This is the beginnings of the church. But apparently... It's stuck because as Paul goes on to plant churches, he begins to do just this. He appoints elders in every town and he gives instruction to Timothy that he put forth to the church's qualifications for deacons. Right. So look at first Timothy chapter three. And this is your other primary text. And I just want you to to uh, hear 
how much Paul values this position and how much he, he emphasizes to Timothy for this position to be valued. Um, he says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, that anyone who aspires to the task of overseer desires a noble task. Like it's a good thing to want to be a pastor. But notice how he emphasizes even more so the good qualities and the value of aspiring to be a deacon. Um, I think that maybe he does this on purpose because there's something glorious, uh, intrinsically glorious in man's view, because a pastor stands up in front of everybody and talks and sort of gets attention, whereas the deacon may not get that kind of attention because of the nature of the ministries that they're carrying out. But listen to how Paul talks about the office. Verse 8, he says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, uh, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, which is a frustrating translation because verse 11 literally just says women likewise. And we'll talk about that later. Women likewise uh, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And then look, look at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So deacons have to be qualified very much like elders have to be qualified. Spiritual qualifications are all very similar. The primary difference just being they don't have to have the gift of teaching. They don't have to be able to teach, right? Uh, because the nature of their work is not necessarily a teaching role. Does it, now, does that mean that deacons are not allowed to teach or not able to be teach? Well, Stephen, right, gives that awesome sermon in Acts 7 and is stoned to death, and he's a deacon, right? I mean, he just, he just had been appointed to the service ministry. That does not mean he doesn't know how to preach. It just means that the way in which he was giving himself to the church was through over this particular service ministry. We have right now a discussion going on in our church um, me and uh, uh, the elders and Austin DeArmond, right? Austin DeArmond is obviously qualified to serve as an elder in our church. He is doctrinally sharp. He's, uh, uh, character qualities are all there, mature. You know, he, he, could, he can pastor. Now, the job that he has right now um, would prevent him from, or may prevent him, from doing what it takes to serve the church as an elder uh, because of the amount of meetings that we have to come together and pray to discuss things going on in the church. He has a job now where he's working for a missions agency that's going to have him traveling a lot. To, he's going to be in Egypt here in a, in a couple weeks, right? So we've had talks and said, you know what? It may not be right for you to serve the church in an elder role right now, but we have this logistical need in our church right now where we really need help maintaining our partnership with our Southeast Asian missionaries. Now, that takes a lot of coordination, a lot of logistical efforts. We need somebody who's responsible for that. And his current job actually is perfect for that. It allows him to run in that lane. And so even though Austin has served as an elder in our church in the past, he's qualified to be an elder right now, his life situation makes it to where he may not be able to do it super well in our church. But his life situation does enable him to serve as a deacon as a deacon over our Southeast Asian partnerships. Now, what does that mean? He'll serve the church 
by carrying out the ministry needs, logistical things. Uh, when it, I mean, think about a mission trip to Southeast Asia. Just getting the plane tickets alone is a nightmare, right? <laughs> for, especially for 12 people or eight people or whatever. And, coordinate. and so we're saying, okay, Austin, serve the church by you being totally over this. And then just coming to the elders and, and we'll kind of work together and that'll be your role. Now, he might do that for two years. He might do that for three years. And he might step out of that deacon role because that's no longer what the church needs. And he might step into an elder role again. It, the, one of the things that's happened in Southern Baptist life is like we've treated ordination like a tattoo that you get on your forehead. And like you can carry it wherever you go. I'm a deacon. Boom. And now I'm a deacon everywhere I go. Every congregation that I go to, I've been ordained as a deacon. It's a one and done forevermore. I'm a deacon. And, and we're like, well, I think they're actually just functional roles within the church. Not, uh, it's not like a promotion in spiritual life that you now wear to glory, right? <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's not like an office which forevermore, you know, you are Deacon Ed for the next 50 years, wherever church you go. No, no, no. I think it's more fluid than that. I think it's what the church needs when, when uh, it needs it. So that's not in my notes at all. So anyways, uh, <laughs> so deacons do not have to learn how to teach. That's why we got there. Deacons don't have to know, be able to teach, um, uh, but it's not wrong if they, they do. If, if that's part of the ministry that they do. Now, remember, okay, as we're thinking in these terms, remember in the New Testament, there is no category for staff member. You recognize that? Staff member is a made up idea. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying it goes, we don't have our thing here. It goes in extra biblical, right? It goes extra biblical category. So, so there's also no category for committee chair in the New Testament. Committee chair over personnel committee, committee chair over the, I just saw Miss Donna shiver a little bit when she <laughs> thought about committee chairs. I've talked to Miss Donna about her being on many committees in her life. But there's, there's no, the extra biblical would be chairman of the finance committee, chairman of the Acts 118, chairman of the, you know, whatever have you, right? Those are sort of made up ideas because there were needs in the church, logistical needs that were too much to bear. So we're trying to figure out how to do this. The problem is what Baptists have traditionally called committee chairs or staff members or team leaders, they're functioning in the biblical role of a deacon. But they're not required to have the same qualifications because it's a made-up role. So what you have is in a Baptist church that would keel over if they had women deacons, right? Which I believe you can have women deacons. We can talk about that at the end. Uh, I know that's and, and and that's fine. We can disagree on those types of things. Um, but in a Baptist church that would keel over for having a woman deacon, they do have a woman sitting as the chair of the finance committee who actually wields more oversight authority than the pastor himself <laughs> when it comes to where the money goes. And so because we've used made-up terms with no biblical qualifications, we've actually opened ourselves up to a whole host of problems when it comes to church life because we have people that were good at business in certain committees and people good at finance and other committees. And, and we've sort of created our own list of man-made qualifications and put them in roles to function. Or I, I recently heard about a church that made a man a deacon because he was a businessman who had not been attending church in a long time. And they hoped that they could get him to attend church more. <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> The, the, I, I, when I was at Bible college, I, remember, I mean, the stories 
of unqualified deacons making pastors' lives miserable are, are unreal. I mean, if you were to talk to Ray up in Indiana about his experience there, um, my, my pastoral ministry professor in undergrad told a story of him talking in the sanctuary and a deacon coming, grabbing the Bible out of his hand and chunking it through a stained glass window in frustration. <laughs> Can you imagine? So because we threw away biblical language, we also threw away biblical qualifications, and we opened up ourselves to a whole host of problems. And now you got young church planners that have thrown out the idea of deacon altogether because of their bad experiences. They just say, well, we're just not going to have them <laughs> because I know what deacons are all about. We're like, well, no, you know a broken version of what they're about. God actually inspired the scriptures which described this office for your good, Right? And so I'm hoping you see how all this works together. When you only have one pastor, not a plurality of elders, deacons have to function like a board of trustees, and members have to be bogged down with committee work and deacon work because the pastor's not doing his job, the deacons aren't doing their job, and now the members are having to do other people's jobs, and now nobody's doing what actually God designed them to do. Members can't – I've talked to so many members, even at FBC Luling who are like, I'm part of like three committees and we go to meetings and do all these types of stuff. And I'll ask, when's the last time you've been hospitable and invited your neighbor into your house? Or, you know, had a hard conversation with a member struggling with sin or all the things that God makes primary. You've busied yourself with committee logistical church work so much. The real work of the ministry isn't being done. And everyone's looking around going, where do we go wrong? And one of the reasons why I think God's made church polity or church government one of the passions of my life is because I'm watching the machine that God designed for the accomplishment of the Great Commission um, uh, all out of whack. And, I, and I'm seeing people abandon the machine, abandon the church just to go accomplish a mission by themselves rather than pausing and asking, why is the machine not working? Let's just put it back together correctly and then let's get busy. Right. So let me pause there, and I want to open up questions about deacon ministry specifically, um, and I'll answer some of them. And if you are really interested in this, I've written like 70 pages on this in a little booklet that I turned into a blog. So there's like eight or nine articles that ask questions about deacons. So if it doesn't get covered here, I can send that link to you as well. But pause. Questions about members, elders, and deacons and how they practically work together in the New Testament to accomplish stuff. Did you say committee heads should be deacons? Yes. Okay, I'll make sure I heard that. Yeah, well, I just think that committee heads are functioning like deacons without so the qualifications. They should have qualifications. I think they should have qualifications. Well, I, think, I think why not go ahead and use the terms, right? I mean, I think that, that what we did is we've read Acts 6 and we said, oh, deacons care for widows. And then we've kind of stopped thinking. And we're like, well, no, that was the particular need in the particular moment that the deacons could take off of the pastors, right? But that doesn't mean that that, that widow need is always the particular need. At St. Rose Community Church, we didn't even have a single widow for like the first like five years, <laughs> you know, but we had lots of needs, right? So, so, so I think that we should think a little bit more about why they were put into place, and it's to take the burden off of the preaching and praying ministries so that they could handle the logistical ministry uh, that needs to be handled. Yeah? 
Should the elders direct the deacons into what needs to be done by deacons in the church? Yeah, I think it's a combination of elders and members, right? So um, the way that it would happen in our church is the elders might bring a proposal to the congregation and say, hey, we have this need. And we think this person is really biblically qualified to, to be an example to the congregation, you know, meets these qualifications. Can we affirm this person to lead over this position, to lead over this, this role? Right, right. And so the congregation would then have a couple months to say, yeah, we think this is good or we think this is bad. And the congregation would vote to affirm, yeah, let's, let's, let's affirm this deacon to serve this role for this time. Right. What you're saying uh, sounds like you, you have a need. You select someone to be a deacon for that need. That's right. Rather than let's elect 12 deacons. Absolutely. It's task specific. The, the office is designed to handle the task. It's not an award for godliness or, or some sort of promotion for meeting qualifications. Uh, the, the qualifications are actually not that awesome in the sense that every single Christian should be striving to live like this, right? I mean, every single Christian in this room, like if we're really being honest, we should all want to be dignified. We should all probably not be greedy. We should not be drunks, <laughs> you know? So the thing that's extraordinary about the qualifications is that they're not that extraordinary, Right? They're just supposed to characterize the person, right? So I think every, we should have tons of qualified people qualified to be deacons in our church. The question is, do their qualifications and their giftings match up with a need that we have? So then we put them with that, with that need. So there's no body club of deacons That's right. who get together Nope. No, 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 no. Because that's more elder work. Um, so, so deacons really don't even have to meet with one another unless their ministries overlap, right? So one of the big needs that we have coming up um, is, uh, I mean, we, we pick up kids throughout the, whole, the neighborhood uh, on a bus ministry. Now, that requires a lot. Maintenance on the bus, gas on the bus, uh, rotations for bus drivers. And you want somebody trustworthy that's going to kind of oversee that and mobilize other members to take care of that. And so one guy we have on our mind of sort of maybe stepping into that role is Zach Huner. He's a little young. Uh, he's only been a Christian for a couple years. Um, the Bible says they should be tested before they're sort of given that office. So we're giving him a little bit of that responsibility right now. And if he does it well, we're going to say, hey, brother, this is yours. We'll take it to the church. We want to, we, we want to affirm Zach as a deacon over our bus ministry. So if you have any bus questions, you want to serve in that ministry, you go to Zach. And, and he's the deacon that handles that that particular ministry. Yep. Plus, I also uh, I would think frees up the elders from was that micromanaging. Yes. You, as it says in Acts chapter six, you turn it over to them. That's right. And the character qualifications are important because you can trust them. Yep. So you're not having to go back behind them and you know badger you know that kind of stuff. It's it's true delegation because the whole congregation says, oh yeah, they're godly. Yeah, they're capable of doing that. We'll trust them with that. Right. Yeah. Now, members are going to serve. Could he serve in that capacity just as a member without the title? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. The title, um, uh, the title functions in several ways. It, it signals to the whole congregation. This is the guy I need to talk to. And he now becomes sort of an affirmed representative example. Like this is a guy that's serving the Lord and using his giftings. Follow after his example, right? The title is important for the whole congregation. It's important too because I think that especially for young men, I think that there's a struggle where they see like the pastor or the preacher and they think that's godliness. 
godliness is being able to preach. And it's like, well, no. Actually, there's 150 church members at St. Rose Community Church. There's only three elders. That's not the epitome of godliness. The, most people are not going to serve in that role. Most people are gifted in different ways. Look at Zach. You know, he's, he's, he's not a preaching pastor or elder, but he's killing it for the glory of the Lord in this ministry because he's gifted in this way. So I think it's important to have both roles within the church because otherwise you get mixed up in thinking that pastors is where it's at. And it's like, well, no, they're just one of the small pieces in the whole functioning body. More questions, thoughts? Yes? Okay, so what about being ordained or ordination? I mean, I know that word kind of means being set apart, mm-hmm. I think. Yep. And then, like we, you were speaking about Brother Austin and said maybe he kind of steps into this role, steps mm-hmm. into this role. And then there's that scripture, and I'll correct me if I'm taking it out of context sure. because the Lord knows I don't want to take it out of sure. context. It says the gifts of God or without repentance, the gifts and callings of God or without repentance. So, I mean, what if, what if you were ordained and then you step out of that role and then it's, yeah. does that go back to where you really ever saved well, again? Well, no. I mean, the, the, the reality is, is that the word ordained is not in the Bible at all. Right. What you have is the word affirmed. And it's symbolized by the laying on of hands. So it's the agreement of, we think this, I'm sorry. It's the agreement of, I just laid my hands on you, brother. Uh, it's the agreement of, we agree that this person should do this, right? We affirm, we'll follow their example, we'll support them as missionaries, we'll do whatever. Now, um, First Baptist Kenner affirmed me when I sent out, said he's going to, they laid hands on me and, and the group, said we affirm he's going to be the pastor of this new church. And everybody that came with me sort of affirmed that with me. Now, just because I was affirmed by that group of congregation, I can't waltz up into another church and say, hey, I'm ordained. I'm your pastor now. What has to happen? They have to affirm me, right? And so I think that it's kind of an unhelpful thing to think of ordination as a one-time forevermore sort of calling or like moment, like conversion. And more of like a group of people affirming for you to serve us in this way right now, right? Which can change. I mean, because I might not be with that same group of people, right? So if, Lord, I don't never want to do this, but if I ever left St. Rose Community Church, I would no longer be a pastor, because I'm not pastoring anyone. I'm not just sort of like Pastor Brandon forever, even if I've got no flock, right? I would become a pastor again the second a new congregation affirmed me, almost reaffirmed me, and made me their, their pastor, right? So similar with Ray Telshow. Ray Telshow was a pastor in Indiana for several years. Um, Kenner laid hands on him to send him out to go there. He's now serving as a member of our church. He's not an elder. He's not a pastor. Um, he was ordained or was affirmed, but that means nothing at our congregation until our congregation says, yeah, we want you to serve as an elder over us now. And so we'll lay hands on him in August, Lord willing, and he will step into that role. You, you see, what I'm, see what I'm saying? It's different, it's different for evangelists. When you're evangelist, it's something that God gave you yeah. to go out and minister. <clears throat> so, I was a for years. Mm-hmm. And it was a tradition. 
I went to a nursing home and I did street ministry. Sure. And they had the home rebuttal. They only sat there and watched you know, they didn't do any of that. And they said to me, you have to cook breakfast on the pastor. And I told them the word about what you're doing, eating is coming out as draw. But what I'm giving is eternal. Mm -hmm. I'll knock on doors and I'll share the word. Sure. But and every single member, every single member is called to serve. Every single member is called to serve. Every single member is called to use their giftings, right? So this is just happening everywhere. Every single member is uniquely gifted, uniquely serving. But there's some ministries that require um, servant leadership to oversee other members to help them do it, right? So you don't just become a deacon because you're killing it evangelizing out. Well, that's great. Every member should be doing that. You might be uniquely gifted to be evangelizing, right? I mean, that, that's great. But unless you were, unless the pastors needed you or the church needed you to somehow oversee a ministry and provide support to the rest, that's when you become deacon, when the rest of the church needs to recognize you and come to you to help in this service area, right? So we don't just like hand out deacon roles to every church member who's serving well. It's like, well, no, I mean, Everybody serves more. Just like just because I, I wipe down tables, like the text says, I'm not like automatically in a new position. No, everybody should wipe down tables, right? <laughs> Every single person, right? What I meant was if the person is an evangelist and they have the gift of ministry to mm -hmm. go out and win souls, that has nothing to do with being a deacon. That has nothing to do with it. Exactly. Exactly. That's just, that's just being a good Christian and using your gifts. That doesn't have anything to do with the pastor or the deacon to lay hands, but affirm right. that. But affirm that. Sure. The person is qualified because they love the Lord and right. they love people. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, what makes an evangelist? Um, I I don't think our view of evangelists is an office of the church. I think it's a gifting that people have, but I don't think it requires any special or official ordination or, or affirmation. It's just some people are better at it than others, and that's okay. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Absolutely. 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 Okay. Absolutely. So would, would he have been an evangelist, Billy Graham? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, evangelist means good. It, yeah, it means good newser, person who's sharing the good news, good at sharing the good news. And so, you know, yeah, you have people that are particularly gifted in doing that and, and sharing the gospel, but um, they would still need to be tied to a local fellowship. Um, and I think that we actually see the results of, of many men not being tied to a local yeah. fellowship because they fall hard. Those big evangelists fall hard. When we think of like a recent Ravi Zacharias situation, you know, one of the issues I think what, when you're a person like that, just going out and traveling and using your giftings, but there's no accountability of the local church. There's no connection to pastors. There's no connection to anyone who actually knows you. It's the same thing as sort of being the single pastor with no one who really knows you. I mean, you're basically setting yourself up for fall. Um, and so people are really surprised by Robbie Zacharias' fall. 
um, because of the sound theology he had. Well, you can have you could be a sheep by yourself with all the sound theology in the world surrounded by wolves, and it doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> you need the shepherd. You need the other sheep in God's design, right? Yes, ma'am. I think. <laughs> she said Jesus did. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, and then, you know, another thing, you gave me the authority to show someone the minutes of, of a business meeting. And so I think uh, humility yeah. is a big, big thing in a church yes. for it to work functionally. Yeah. And uh, for whether they are deacon or just a person mm-hmm. sitting in the congregation. Absolutely. That we don't think of ourselves more highly. That's right. Than the other That's right. It, it didn't matter if you have your church polity, your church government, exactly the way the Apostle Paul would have drew it up himself. Like it didn't matter if Apostle Paul wrote your bylaws, right? If the elders and deacons do not meet the spiritual qualifications required, it's a nightmare. You can have a plurality of elders and it'd be a nightmare. You can have task-oriented, servant-minded deacons leading, leading out in ministries in the church and it could be a nightmare, right? Um, you can even have a membership process, and it'd be a nightmare if the individuals in the church are not trying to be like Jesus. <laughs> and they're constantly, I mean, Jesus had ultimate authority and then wielded that authority by submitting himself and dying on a cross, right? Um, elders have a certain degree of authority within the church, but the way they wield it is that they die a thousand deaths for the good of their congregation, right? They, they humble themselves as best they can. They wield that authority to try to, to do good to the congregation rather than to uh, serve themselves, right? And, and that just has to be true of every church member in order for it to work. Yeah. Any other questions about church? membership discipline elders deacons how it functions anything at all because then i'm going to close with a a recap and final charge my hope one day um my my philosophy of a ministry kind of at our church i would love to minister to the drug the drug addict in saint rose community but i recognize I can't exhaust the church members, and I can't exhaust myself. So when will St. Rose Community Church have a ministry like Celebrate Recovery or something like that when there's some members among our church that have a passion for it and are spiritually qualified and will step into that role to lead that, right? And we'll do it, right? We'll, we'll, we'll step in and we'll do it. Um, orphan ministry, widow ministry. Um, I found that uh, – uh, Homeless ministry. I found that what a lot of churches do is say, we got to do all these things in order to be faithful. And so you have one pastor at the top saying, we got to have all these ministries and sort of force feeding it down the throat of the congregation. And the congregation is now doing all those ministries poorly and they're exhausted because they're just trying to do everything. And so our philosophy of the church has been more of a, 
hey, just constantly remind the church members, like, you're the primary disciple makers of our church. If you have particular giftings or callings or um, desires that are stronger than other members, like, for example, if you are just passionate about the pro-life position and um, providing care to pregnant moms that are, that, are, that are single and struggling and you want to lead up a ministry, but there's another person in the church that their supreme passion is to get the gospel to the unreached people group in Sudan, right? This person wanting to get the gospel to the unreached people group in Sudan, it's not that they want babies to be killed, but they can't give their full attention to anti-abortion ministries and reach the people in Sudan. <laughs> so we have to have this, this space where members are going to be uniquely drawn to different ministries and pour themselves out for it, and that's okay, right? And that's, in fact, good. That's the way in which the church reaches the world. As we grow and people fall into their giftings and passions, then we light a fire under them, say, recruit other members that are like-minded in you, and then go for it. What can the elders do to support uh, and, and we put deacons over that ministry or, or what have you. We do not have many deacons at our church right now. Our hope and desire is to have more. Um, but I think we're in a good, good spot. I think the way in which it happens in church life is people come to faith. you got members coming together. They affirm elders. And then over time, as the needs grow, right, you begin to appoint people into those positions. So I think we're just now hitting into a season in our church where it's like, okay, we're getting big enough. Not everybody can do everything. Let's start appointing some people to some different things. Let me, let me close with this. Let me close with this. This is what we've looked at over the last seven weeks together, including this bonus session. Week one, we asked the question, why do we need to study the church? Why do we need to study church? We talked about three reasons. We're influenced by our experiences. We're influenced by the culture around us. We're influenced by the sin within us. So we've got to come to God's word to figure out what it says. Week two, we talked about the church being created by God's word and devoted to God's word. And we talked about three categories we should think in. Anybody know what those categories are? When we ask, should we do this in a church? This thing is either? That's right. Biblical, extra biblical, or unbiblical. Where does it fall in? Week three, we asked the question, what is the church? Can anybody give me some of the definitions from that week? What is the church? The, the images, analogies the Bible gives us. Temple. Temple. Body. Of Body. Family, of God. Family. We got one person answering here. <laughs> <laughs> Who else? One more. Or a couple more. Believers. Believers. That is true. That is absolutely true. But it's not one of the images or the analogies. Fellowship. The fellowship. That's right. The fellowship. The koinonia. Yeah. And there's one more. Bride, that's right, absolutely. Then we ask the question, why does the church exist? What is the purpose of the church? What's the primary purpose of the church? Glorify God. God. That's right. What else? To evangelize, to make disciples of all nations. And then we also included one other one. To make the gospel visible. Our community life, our relationships with the other, put on display what we believe that Jesus has done for us. The way we forgive reflects the way we've been forgiven, right? Week five, we looked at membership and discipline. Okay, how do we actually functionally do this? What does it mean to join yourself to a church, be kicked out of a church? Last week, week six, was what are members, members responsible for? Voting in new leaders, voting out members, agreeing on money's, where the money's going to go, several things. And we talked about elder ministry and what they should do. Today, we wrapped it up with deacons. And this is what I want to conclude with. I want to conclude with two texts. 
that we're going to read that should be familiar with you. Two texts. First one is Matthew 28. So turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. If we had a whole other week, we'd do, a, we'd do the next week on church planting, but we don't. So I'm going to do the last five minutes on this. Matthew 28, verse 19. Here's the commission to Jesus, all you should be familiar with. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the disciples heard that command. And they did not give the rest of their lives to hosting big revivals where they could get as many people saved as possible. They did not simply give themselves to evangelistic efforts where they would get as many individuals converted as possible and then move on to the next city. They heard that command and then they busied themselves with the work of planting churches who would continue to make disciples long after they're gone. They recognized that individual converts sort of scattered out living their Christian lives were not gonna get, was not going to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, but rather communities that followed the commands of the Lord was what was going to change whole cities, right? Not just individuals, but communities. So the church in the New Testament becomes both the end goal of the mission and the means of accomplishing that mission. Like what's the end goal in another country, in another place? And not just that it, someone gets saved, not just that 20 people get saved, but that those people get saved and join together to grow, to then be the witness to that whole city. And then the missionary can say, praise the Lord. And they can go to another place. They can stay and serve within that body of Christ. Uh, what Paul often did was said, praise the Lord. And he went on to the next place that did not have a church witness. So St. Rose Community, right, seven years ago. It will be seven years uh, in August when First Baptist St. Rose closed down and voted to give the property to First Kenner. So it will be seven years. The St. Rose Community did not just need a couple people on St. Rose Avenue passionate about evangelizing, going door to door. That's not what the St. Rose Community needed. What the St. Rose Community needed was a fellowship of believers who would consistently reflect the glory of Jesus by the way they did disaster relief, by the way that they communed together, by the way they looked like a stinking cult helping Taylor and Stephen move, right? (laughs) Yesterday, we rolled out here like 30 people deep yesterday and moved three people in three hours. They needed a community of people that looked very strange over the long haul. That's what the St. Rose community needed, and I think that's what Paul recognized the world needed. Um, well, last, this is our last stop, 1 Timothy 3, chapter 14. 1 Timothy 3, chapter 14. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 14. This comes as the very next paragraph after Paul has just given qualifications for elders, then he's given qualifications for deacons, then Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you 
so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So I'm writing so you know how things should work in the household of God. Which, what is the household of God? Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the the mystery of godliness. And, And I emphasize the we. Great indeed, we confess the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The New Testament seems to emphasize it's the household of God, the church of the living God, which is the buttress of truth, the pillar of truth that declares this to the nations. It's through qualified elders and qualified deacons and the saints coming together in households that actually make this message clear to the nations. So church polity matters because how we function together is also how we display the gospel together. Thank you for joining us for this class. Um, I do want to emphasize again um, and just ask that you would uh, please fill out the post-survey. You fill out the pre-survey before you started the class. I want to encourage you to fill out the post-survey. We were handing handing around a sheet of paper for you to write your email on it if you wanted me to email it to you. Um, thank you. Um, if you don't care and you don't want me to email it to you because you'll see it off of uh, Facebook or our Faith Life app, then that's great too. But if you want to email to you, I will email this to you uh, today. I mean, you'll, you'll have this available in your inbox by the time you get home from church. Um, and I just encourage you to fill that out because I'll be sort of analyzing the results and turning in my big paper to school uh, by the end of this week, hopefully. Uh, I I see one person in school that has to do these types of things going, yeah, fill this out for him. Fill this out for him. (laughs) Um, And let me just encourage you to, after this, you know, coming to this class and thinking about the the gospel going forth, uh, one day I will stand up in front of the whole congregation and I will say, there's an opportunity to plant a new church in a new neighborhood. Um, Pray about whether the Lord would take you there. Uh, pray about whether the Lord would have you sell your house and buy a house in a new neighborhood, just like we've done in St. Rose, to see the gospel go forth. Um, I don't know when that day is going to come. Uh, it could be this year. It could be two years from now. It could be three years from now. But one day I'm going to stand up and say that, and I'm hoping there will be members in the church to say, yeah, we'll move our lives to a new place. I was counting up the other day, and I think that we're at like 16 households on St. Rose Avenue now that belong to St. Rose Community Church, that are members of St. Rose Community Church. That's insane. 16 households right here. And so we're seeing the Lord literally turn a community upside down. But it's only through people that were literally willing to sacrifice, sell houses, move into a new place to do that. So one day, maybe the Lord will lead you guys to, uh, to plant a church as well. Um, Ronnie, will you pray for us, brother? Close us out. Uh, thank you.